Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Let's talk about the night perspective. Hey guys, Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives. I'm here with Kyle Daly from Cage Daily Knives, and this is episode number 016, a meeting with Mr. Anderson. Welcome to Knife Perspective, guys. How you doing, Kyle? Pretty good, man. It was uh, got some, some good stuff to talk about in the shout-outs and gear talk. Went to Fabtech. It's going on this week. Uh, by the time this goes up, Fabtech will already be over, but it's uh, a huge fabrication conference in Chicago. Walked five miles yesterday talking to all sorts of different people. That sounds as exciting as an engineering conference. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's amazing, all the the robots and everything. It's truly oh. going to – all that stuff's going to revolutionize how everything's made in the future. Everything from making my burger to taking the order. Yeah. Well, and making a car and everything in between. Oh, I thought they were doing that already. Uh, the the robots are getting more and more uh, complex and easy to program. They have tons of machine vision. You know, I'm just telling you, I've heard a warning story. As soon as you hear Skynet, we're done. That's it. No more. Yeah. Yeah, they have very good memories. They don't forget anything. But how have you been doing, Dan? Um, I'm pretty good. I am. Uh, I'm actually a little out of sorts. Um, tomorrow I find out whether or not I'm going to have to shut the company down for a couple of months, three or four months. So I'm I'm a little on edge. All right. Uh, it looks like I detached my uh, my biceps uh, tendon, and the recovery on that is going to be four to six weeks with my arm immobilized and then up to a month with limited range of motion. Um, and then, as you know, if you've been away from a grinder for a couple of months, it'll take me a little while to, to get my touch back. Yep. So, uh, depending on what they say tomorrow, um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be doing a lot of podcast, not so much grinding, but a lot of podcasts for the next couple of months. So, you have that to look forward to. Yeah, you'll <laughs> you imagine you'll be seeing a lot of pictures on uh, the Knife Perspective Instagram page. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the spelling's going to be terrible, but the pictures will be amazing. <laughs> nice. Well, we hope uh, hope the best for all that, and hopefully, you get a speedy recovery. Thank you very much. When I had my ACL MCL meniscus when I was in high school, and you bounce back a lot quicker when you're. Uh, like 17 when that happens. I, I remember I lost a ton of muscle mass in my leg, just not really walking on it for the two weeks that uh, they had me kind of immobilized and not walking on my, my leg. Well, and part of the problem is they usually want to do this repair within three or four days of the injury. And mm -hmm. um, I, for some reason, thought I could just suck it up and it would magically heal itself because now is an inconvenient time to have an injury. So uh, 
it was four or five months ago when I did the injury. Is there ever a convenient time to have the injury like that? Uh, there's not, but apparently right away when the recovery time would have been shorter would have been more convenient, and I wasn't aware of that. All righty. Um, well, I, I started, FYI to everybody out there. <laughs> yeah. I started to get upset about it, and, and Beth looked at me like, hey, mm. it hurt really badly. Not for weeks, but for months. And you somehow thought that you weren't injured. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, because I'm 45 years old. I hurt all the time. <laughs> nice. Sponsors got Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives for all your knife needs. Uh, we do bushcraft and a lot of kitchen knives between the two of us. So you can uh, find a lot of your uh, kitchen cutlery needs of one of the two of us. You're really getting the rhythm. I like I like the little the emphasis you're putting on the end. Yeah, working on that some. And you can you can buy uh, our knives uh, right away from Old Town Cutlery. You can find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives there, and you can find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center and a new dealer. I'll let you uh, talk about that. Uh, well, I was at uh, Blade Show West. I got a chance to meet the the guys from Knife House, and they have stores in uh, Portland and Phoenix, and they are they are kitchen and culinary specific stores, and they have started carrying dogwood. So if if you want it right away, or you can't find it on my website, be sure to check out Knife House. There's a, a link in the show notes, and they will be carrying my kitchen knives. Very cool. Uh, they also do some really phenomenal repair and sharpening services. Nice. Very cool. For our shout-outs, we'll go with Fabtech. It's a uh, huge, huge, huge uh, all things fabrication-related. They 3D printers, robots, uh, welding, grinding, materials. It's a, it's a huge trade show at the McCormick Center. Uh, apparently, it rotates between... So every other year it's in Chicago, but then it'll go to Atlanta. So it'll go like uh, Chicago, Atlanta, Chicago, Vegas, Chicago, Atlanta, Chicago, Vegas. Uh, so every other year it's in Chicago and then goes out to one of the coasts to make it a little easier for people that uh, aren't able to make it into Chicago. Um, the coast of Vegas? Well, Vegas is towards the west coast and atlanta's towards the east coast that's that's a fair point <laughs> a lot more a lot closer than chicago is this is true Chica um, chicago's right on the coast of lake michigan but <laughs> nobody really wants to go there <laughs> it's the coast of cold as hell this time of year <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty cold it it sounds it actually sounds really cool uh, if they're atlanta next year i may have to start reaching out and see if i can finagle uh, a way to get in yeah, I'm sure that I actually attended there through my, my actual company, Navistar, and uh, I'm sure we could probably hook you up with uh, your admission fee waived for, yeah, giving you a coupon code. That would be awesome. I would greatly appreciate it. But even even still, if you don't have a free coupon code, I think it was only like $45 uh, oh. for general admission for the entire week. It's not like... Uh, super expensive. Oh, I, and I, I assumed you needed to be credentialed or something to get in. If it's open to the public, I'll absolutely spend 45 bucks to watch 3d printers and welding robots. Yeah, it was, it was huge. I, I was pretty tired at the end of the day. I, I stood 
I was up on my feet from about 8.30 to when I left at like 4.30 and didn't take a lunch break or anything. Wow. So that was talking to people and finding about about all sorts of stuff for for my work and a bunch of abrasive stuff that I'm interested with here. So the booth that I talked to the most was the 3M abrasives. They're They're really trying to put some more emphasis into the knife industry the two the two biggest abrasive people in the the knife industry is norton and 3m and 3m is wanting to try to expand that business even more and so they were talking uh made a good contact with one of the abrasive engineers there so cool possibly might have him on the podcast to to kind of explain their stuff i would love to have him on and uh yeah before i started doing particle steel i used a lot of 3m and didn't switch to Norton until I started using more ceramic abrasives. Mm-hmm. They have uh, about seven different belts, I think, that are different types of ceramic abrasives. Uh, I've used a few of them, but I, apparently I wasn't using the the correct type. They have, The problem with uh, a lot of our using the ceramics is it's hard... You got to use a lot of of pressure to break them down to expose more cutting surface. And so what I do is I have a a piece of steel that's about a half inch by one inch uh, mild steel that I just cram into the belt when it stops cutting uh, to, to break and expose new, new grains. And that's a good idea. I've heard of some people using like uh, the, the like diamond tipped, things for like uh, dressing bench stones yeah, and things to help with that. But I've never actually done anything. I just usually cram a piece of steel in there and go hog wild on it. I'd love to talk to him about what the different abrasives are and what the best application for each one is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Some of them have some very specific uses and I get very lost on the differences. Yeah, and there's very subtle nuances with uh, the different coatings. So, like, between Norton and 3M, like, Norton uses, uh, like, an orange uh, grinding that kind of goes in between all the the abrasive grains, and 3M's is usually red for their ceramic stuff, and that's grinding aid and how that interacts with the the particles in there does different things. So they have got a bunch of different types even in within their ceramic it's not just uh we have aluminum oxide uh, zirconia and ceramic there's like lots of different grades in between all those and the backing on the belt can have an effect too on on how you work material for sure yes if it's really flexible or super stiff so one of the other belts that i use quite a bit um it's from uh kingsbore their one inch wide scallop belt is one of the the ones that I use a ton. It's a yellow from, I get them from Pops Knife Supply. That really saves a ton of time when doing handles. And they came out with a a different type of uh, two-inch disc. So I don't know if you use any of those like on a die grinder, the two-inch quick change discs. Not yet, but uh, from what I've heard, I need to, yeah, I've never worked on a disc grinder. I've all, I've done belt grinding. But I'm well, this is, yeah, these are like really small, uh, two inch diameter. Oh, uh, oh. For, okay. For like, for like a die grinder, yeah. not like a, a big disc grinder. I'm sorry. Brain, cranial flatulence. 
<laughs> that's fine. But yeah, they came out with like a different lock mechanism on that. They gave me a few of those to try out, so I'm going to see see about that. And then Burr King was there with a bunch of grinders and buffers, and they have a uh, tumbling machine that looked pretty cool, but was super pricey. And then uh, I talked to the people at Geiswine Stones. They're going to they're going to send me a couple stones to they said are going to dramatically uh, decrease my time for hand sanding, getting the scratches out. Hmm. And uh, I'm excited to to try some of that. Apparently, I was holding the stone completely wrong. Uh, I was using I bought some stones from McMaster before that I would kind of do it just how I do it with a like one inch wide stick with sandpaper so i bought one inch wide by half inch tall stones from mcmaster and tried uh, using that one inch wide flat spot going up and down and apparently you're supposed to hold it um so it's more like a pencil directly into the the blade hmm. and i had i had seen some people do it like that but that was always in the context of like polishing molds uh and Apparently, I need to do it the same way for doing knives. But, uh, yeah, so that was really cool, getting to talk to a bunch of those kind of knife-specific companies, too. Got to see uh, the people at Tormach. That was pretty cool, seeing their new uh, CNC. I think it was – I forget how many horsepower it was, but runs on 220 single phase, go right in the garage. Saw the people at Haas, and they, uh, they, they were trying to sell me Sell me one of their CNC machines hard. <laughs> <laughs> On to, speaking of those uh, Kingsport abrasives, the two-inch die, uh, quick-change die grinder uh, sanding disc, one of the companies I saw had the M12 battery-operated 90-degree die grinder. I played around with that a little bit. Uh, Milwaukee, I didn't actually see was there. I was kind of surprised that they weren't at Fabtech because – Pretty much everybody else was Makita and uh, Matabo and all those other battery companies. But uh, when I stopped at my favorite local place, uh, Berlin's House of Tools, if you are in the Chicagoland area, they service a lot of the or a lot of the like professional tool users. But I got the Milwaukee M12 90 degree die grinder. It's the part number is 2485-22 for the kit. Or for the bare tool, it's 2485-20. And uh, I was playing around with that tonight. That thing is awesome. Ever since I saw it about two months ago on Instagram, I've been been wanting one. And they finally started shipping them out uh, the end of last month. So I finally made it to my local tool place. And they told me they had one. And when I got there, they couldn't find it, Uh-oh. and uh, appar- apparently it was still in the back on the uh, the receiving dock. So got that, and I'll be uh, po- posting some photos and stuff up of that. It was pretty cool. Sounds like uh, sounds like you had a little uh, trip to the candy store. Oh yeah, yeah. If I had about five hundred thousand dollars, I would have been super happy there. <laughs> yeah, it, when it comes to like the CNC machines, guys, y'all don't, y'all don't understand. You don't need to sell it to me. I just don't have any money. <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the Haas machines that I really like, he goes, uh, 
it's only thirty four thousand dollars how how it's shown here and i go well the thing is i'm about thirty three thousand dollars short (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. so he was like we do financing i'm like oh you're killing me (laughs) what's your 60-year plan look like (laughs) yeah but they they're running a deal right now and you can get a vertical mill and a cnc lathe for i think it's like 20 percent down and then it's like a thousand dollars a month for five years uh I'm like ooh, but still a lot of money <laughs> yeah i'm not arguing that it's a good deal i'm just saying i don't have the money mm-hmm. yeah so moving on to knives in the news you found a uh a pretty good pretty good article for uh why you might need to have a battle axe and first of all i want everybody to click on the link for no other reason than to see this gentleman who defended his home and hearth with a double bit battle axe is wearing a jane hat and if you don't know what jane is paul or who jane is pause this podcast go watch every episode of firefly Think to yourself, thank you, Dan. You have improved my life. And now come back and finish the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I, if you if you want to uh, message Dan directly, that's uh, dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. If you are not happy with this Firefly uh, recommendation. If you're not happy with it, don't message me because we can't be friends. <laughs> <clears throat> a, uh, a gentleman up north, he was alerted that someone was trying to gain access to his apartment. Apparently the slightly nutty ex-boyfriend of his, uh, his roommate. And he was watching Rick and Morty and playing video games and became concerned. And just as this unfortunate gentleman kicked open his front door, he had picked up his double bitted battle axe and charged the intruder. Um, he swung it and he was pretty sure that he had hit him. Apparently, the canines had no trouble tracking the blood portrayal all the way back to the intruder's location where he was arrested and then taken to the hospital for treatment to a significant wound to his torso. Wow. That's so crazy. The next time your, your wife, loved one, life partner questions your next purchase, you can point out to this. You never know. You may actually need this to defend hearth and home. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs to have at least one battle axe. Yeah. You know, there's a wife joke in there that I I feel like it's a trap. I'm just not taking it. (laughs) You're going to have to try harder than that, Kyle. It's a trap. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Admiral Akbar. And then uh, we found another one. This was – Good news for uh, charity. Anthony Bourdain's chef's knife sold for $231,250 at uh, auction. Uh, I believe they said it was the second most expensive knife ever purchased at a public auction. Correct. And, uh, yeah, uh, the good. Um, I couldn't find the actual percentage, but I knew or I've heard from quite a few people that a uh, percentage of all the money raised is going to go to scholarships for the culinary institute of america so that's uh always good to see that it was a bob kramer uh knife and i believe it had meteorite folded into the the damascus it was a really pretty knife it was if i remember correctly it was 
some of a nickel iron uh, meteorite and Anthony Bourdain did, I think several episodes on the making of this knife. Hmm. Very cool. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, the, the construction was documented and of course it goes to a phenomenal charity. Yeah. I, I had heard about it and I looked at it a few times, uh, like right when it started and it went from like a thousand dollars to $15,000 to over $30,000 pretty quick. I'm like, well, definitely not going to be able to afford this one. Yeah. It went from, couldn't believe it. Oh gosh. I might actually, Oh, Nope. I'm good now. Thanks guys. <laughs> Took that decision right off my plate. Yeah. <laughs> new car or then it's like new house or <laughs> I've got a, a friend that says uh, you never spend gun money on a knife you never spend car money on a gun and you never spend house money on a car okay one of my uh, one of our great friends of the podcast uh, Eric Mann one of his favorite sayings is you can live in a car but you can't drive a house <laughs> 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 Not sure where he got that from, but that's always been pretty funny. That's beautiful. I'm, I might. No, I'm not might. I'm definitely stealing that. I mean, I'll try to give him credit if there's an opportunity, but I'm absolutely using that in the future. Alrighty. Well, you want to inter introduce our interviewee for the day? I do. Um, meeting him was. It was special. It, it was a special moment when I met him. I mean, you have to understand. It took place on a drunken night on this lonely moonlit ridge in Tennessee. The moon was full and bright, and there was the gentle scent of moonshine on the air. Um, and there, two lonely gentlemen met each other. It was, it was life-altering for me, I know. Uh, I got to check out uh, the prototype of his, uh, his canteen knife that, that day and, or evening started talking and it turns out we had quite a bit in common, especially on some philosophical concepts around knives and got to enjoy his writing when he was at the truth about knives. Uh, later on, got to hang out at uh, blade show and I have been fortunate enough to be able to call him friend ever since Mr. David Anderson. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Kyle. Honored to be here. I'd like to throw in that uh, the only exception I take to the telling of that tale is it wasn't quite a lonely moonlit ridge. It was a rather warm and inviting ridge at uh, both of our first Beckerhead gatherings with plenty of awesome people. I mean, it was hot and it was probably summer and there was like six <laughs> other people around, but that doesn't make a very good story. I see. Yes. And as you know, I will not let facts interfere with a good story. I do know that about you. <laughs> Very good. Well, we're glad to have you on, David. Well, want to start off with uh, where'd you grow up? Assuming you have, in fact, grown up. <laughs> you can grow old, but you don't have to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Dan, Dan, of course, is uh, living proof of that. <laughs> Birds got to fly, fish got to swim. Well, this is going to be one of those evenings. I'll try to keep the uh, the... Trash talking to a minimum, but uh. <laughs> you got to you got to not distract him as much as possible. I hey, know, right? It's hard. Talk all the it. trash you want. I'll pay Kyle to edit it out. So, Kyle, what I want to tell to you is, <laughs> I'm I'm getting paid to edit it out. Well, you were going to be. <laughs> Alrighty. So, where I I grew up, um, 
I was actually born in Indiana. I'm technically a Hoosier, um, but my dad was a uh, pastor and we moved around a lot when I was a kid. Uh, wound up several different places in Indiana and Maryland, both um, throughout, you know, all of my school years. And currently I'm, uh, I've settled outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland, uh, where I reside with my lovely wife. Nice. Speaking of your lovely wife. Mm. As as I'm sure you know, there's the the Dan Kyle scale. Um, Kyle being the very normal, healthy way to go about meeting a woman, courting her, falling in love, and getting married. And then on the opposite end of that scale is Dan. So, what is your "I met my wife" story, and and where do you feel that it falls on the Dan Kyle scale? So uh, far closer to the Kyle side of things. <laughs> uh, like Kyle, I believe, I, I also went, met my wife online. Nice. It's one of those, uh, you know, I don't think there's as much of a stigma as there once was about it, which I think is great because she's a wonderful person and I'm very fortunate to have her in my life. But mushy stuff aside, I do have a bit of a funny story in that I, I like to say we had several first dates. Uh, we hmm. we went out once, and then she went out of the state for a month and a half to be with her family, and she came back, and we had a second first date. And basically, I I just kind of never left her alone, and you know, now we're married. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta trick them a little bit too. What was your what was your first knife? So, like, do you remember? I, I do, in fact, remember. And like many things that you'll probably ask me today, I have more than one answer, if that's okay. How do you have more than one first night? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Kyle. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> Some things happened. I'm not proud of it. So, my, my actual first knife I ever had, um, I earned from selling popcorn in the Cub Scouts. I still have it. It's a, uh, it's a, you know, had the little trails in popcorn logo on the side. Wasn't a Swiss army knockoff, but it was a similar type of knife. Um, the covers have since popped off. The scissors spring has popped off. Never could put a good edge on it. So that, that was the first knife. Yeah. I got a lot of junk wood getting sucked into selling popcorn, fishing poles and different stuff that you were super excited about as a kid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, it was wonderful. It was, it was the knife, but my first real pocket knife is, uh, was, is also connected to the Boy Scouts uh, as a knife that my father got for me. It was a Camillus, uh, whittling knife, BSA whittler, uh, very similar to a Stockman pattern. Um, that instead of a spade blade, it had a, uh, a pen blade and a coping blade instead of the little sheep's foot blade. Otherwise the same. Um, but it was, you know, Camillus made in the USA. And at the time it was the only Boy Scout knife still being made with carbon steel. Uh, and I don't have that knife anymore. Uh, unfortunately that knife is at the bottom of a latrine at Broad Creek Memorial Ooh. Scout Reservation in Maryland. <laughs> heartbroken as you can imagine yeah uh but i still do have the the knife that replaced it the dad felt so bad for me he uh he got me another one um and i love that knife it's the one thing i'll never get rid of if i have to get rid of every other knife in my collection um and it's what's cool is you can kind of see my 
my evolution of as I've gotten more into knives and better at knife things, um, simply from the way I used to sharpen it. You know, I, uh, I, it, it makes me cringe to say it now, but I used to pull it through those carbide sharpeners that just do wreak havoc on your edge. Um, but so you can still see some of the marks from that on the coping blade, even though I've cleaned the edge up since then I convexed the main blade several years later. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a documentary on David C. Anderson as well, which is kind of neat. We all have to start somewhere. Yeah. I ran my, I ran quite a few pocket knives through, uh, the, I had a Benchmade. Benchmade actually made a version of it, uh, that you could like kind of clamp into a vice and, mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that for a long time before I wised up. And unlike Dan, I, I wasn't blessed with uh, a family that had a whole big set of stones and stuff that uh, was uh, common knowledge. You know, there's a lot of advantages to growing up poor in the South. And one of them is that you you have the 75-year-old sharpening stone in the family that you learn to sharpen from. Yeah. So that that knife looks pretty cool. I did a quick Google search of it. it looks like it has a uh, uh, bottle opener, kind of a screwdriver tip, like a no, Marlin spike. No, that's or... um, the one I actually had. It's just the three three main blades. That's it. Um, you know, they they made several knives at the time. I can send a picture to you guys if you if you want to throw it up Please on your uh, yeah. Instagram or something. But you know, the three. That's part of how our listeners judge you is by the knife you first had. <laughs> Um, I've still got it. Yeah. Three blades, um, has a long pole on the clip point blade with a little sawtooth type of pattern to it that you could strike a, uh, a match on, which was really cool. Um, and fake, you know, Delrin, uh, jigged Delrin scales on the side. Uh, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't putting bone on those, uh, entry level BSA knives. <laughs> really? <in> that day. <laughs> I found another one. So it has like a, kind of like a sawtooth pattern on the top spine of the kind of clip point blade. Yeah. As the, uh, as the nail puller or as the, the nail neck. Yeah. Okay. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think really I think cool I found... little knife. And so, like I said, it was the only one that at the time, this was early nineties that they were still making with carbon steel. The only boy scout knife official knife that had carbon steel anymore may or may not have actually been made by Schrade, even though it had a Camillus stamp on it. We're not, I'm not Ooh. entirely sure about that. I've, I've found some conflicting information there, but they, they made stuff for each other all the times back in those days and Imperial as well. So it's, it's not outside the realm of, uh, I don't know. I, I find it difficult to believe that you found conflicting information in the knife industry. Well, and on the internet too. Oh, oh yeah. No, that's just not possible. I mean, if it's on the internet, it has to be true. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're on the internet. And, I mean, everybody should listen to everything let's, we say without questioning it. Let's be careful how far this rabbit hole yeah. we go, boys. Uh, um, cool. So, you've got a wife. I do. She claims you. <laughs> and you are an entrepreneur, a knife designer, a buyer, and a sometimes you still write as well. Mm -hmm. How exactly do you balance all of that? Still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> when I figure it out, I'll let you know. It's one of those things. Um, you know, it's it's fun when your your passion gets to be 
thing you kind of throw in throw all that energy into several different areas that all kind of complement each other rather nicely um yeah i'll get back to you on that cool how did how did you uh get started with knives do you do you remember i guess you kind of mentioned a little bit before was it the the boy scouts got you started loving knives yes i mean that's where the love definitely started um and you know it it just kind of came and, and went through the years um, until in my shortly after or like, I guess in college and shortly after college is when kind of the it really ramped up and became an obsession. And yeah, eventually then that led, you know, several years down the line. Eventually, after I would absorbed as much as I could and tried to learn as much as I could, I got the harebrained idea that I had something I wanted to say about knives and maybe somebody on the internet wanted to hear me say it. So that's when I, I reached out to uh, the truth about knives.com, which is a spinoff of uh, the truth about guns and asked them if they were looking for uh, contributors. And that kind of, it's kind of how I got my foot in the door of the, uh, the, the broader knife industry. How would you describe your time doing the uh, truth, truth about knives? Absolutely. Great. Um, absolutely. Great. It was the, like I said, it, it was the step that kind of led me to where I am now, where I'm, you know, I, as you mentioned, I'm a, have a bit of an entrepreneur. I've got my own knife company, my, which is a, a side project for me. And I've got my day job uh, working in the industry, uh, which we'll of course get to, I'm sure. Um, and it all started from, you know, starting to write for that blog, just uh, kind of putting myself out there and seeing if uh, anyone would have me basically um, met a lot of awesome people, made some very, very good friendships, was exposed to a lot, both knowledge as well as product out there through the reviews I did for that site, but met a lot of great people, met both of you guys uh, while I was still writing for the blog, several folks like uh, Ethan Becker, of course, who we, we mentioned his gatherings a little bit ago. And then guys like LT Wright, who I've uh, I've formed a friendship and a, a good partnership with as well. So it was a great way for me to learn more as well as kind of, you know, make some great connections, which are you know still paying dividends today. Very cool. Yeah, LT is phenomenal people. Great, great person. And makes a great knife, too. He does. Yeah. Him and him and his group just started a podcast, too. I think it's called The, the Shack or something like that. They did, yes. And, uh, they got a couple episodes up. Yeah, yeah. The Shack and an LTWK podcast is uh, where you can find it on at least on iTunes. Plug for them. So, how did you transition from the truth about knives into? Well, I guess it's a spoiler alert. We'll get to it towards the end, but to retail. <laughs> so the at a certain point. Um, I kind of, uh, in, in my normal day job, I was reached a point where I realized I, I needed something different. So I started looking for some opportunities elsewhere. And that's when I came across a job opp opportunity with uh, knifecenter.com online retailer. Wound up applying there. And about the time that I got accepted to work there, the the blog actually kind of folded out from under us um, very suddenly. It, it wound up dovetailing very neatly into when I was starting the job, so it kind of eliminated a uh, 
hard conversation uh, I might have had to have with uh, the guy who signed my paychecks. But uh, basically, the you know, you, you had Clay Alders on uh, a few weeks ago, who was the uh, the managing editor there. I was kind of his right hand man. Um, for about four years or so, there were a couple other contributors, but it was essentially us, you know, maintaining the content on the site, him far more than me, but really the two of us kind of keeping the site going, uh, earlier in 2018, the truth about guns was bought by wide open media, which, so we were part of that, uh, transaction being as we were a, we were owned by the truth about guns and, it was the end of June. I do. I remember that they decided to essentially shut the blog down. Then they told us the night before they were doing it. That was all the warning we had. Um, they changed the passwords. They revoked our publishing privileges, and we were done. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was it was kind of a bitter pill to swallow. It was a tough note to end on because I think we did some really great work at that blog. You know, we did a lot of stuff. There were, there were plenty of people out there covering production stuff. We did a lot of where we tried to reach out and cover some custom stuff, um, custom makers who might not have a platform otherwise. And to have it all just kind of yanked out from under us was, uh, you and know. Y'all's willingness to work with the, the smaller companies and especially the, the custom guys is something I really appreciated. And I don't know if – the industry ever got a chance to really give y'all credit for, but that's y'all were helping a part of the industry that got very little attention. And you'll probably never know how much I appreciated that. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, it was, it was fun to do. I mean, it was so rewarding. We got to hear cool stories, meet cool people, test out some cool knives every now and then. Yeah, it was just, it was really neat. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's the blog is a commodity. It was a property. And if the company decides they want to do that with it, fine. You know, I, I don't really begrudge them that. What I do still have a problem with is the way they went about it. And the fact that they never let us even say, a po like, like I said, for four years, uh, essentially, it was me and Clay holding things up and, and interacting with the people. We had, you know, re regular readers who would chime in all the time and we never even got to say thank you and good night. So I'd like to take this opportunity, if I could, to say to everyone out there who ever read or enjoyed the truth about knives and wondered what happened to us, wish we could still be out there doing what we could do, but thank you for your support over all those years. And thanks for being a reader. No! Ninjas with their onions and, Sneaking around, <laughs> sorry to hijack there. I've been wanting to say that for a long time. I never had the platform anymore, and I had to wait until all their uh, tax paperwork cleared. So I <laughs> felt like they didn't. I didn't need anything from them anymore, and I could say whatever yeah. I wanted. <laughs> now that they can't take any money from you, there's a few things you'd like to say. Yes. <laughs> nice, but the oh, site yeah. is still up. You can still go. Like they, they basically they're. They're running ads on the archives and and just pulling in whatever dollars they pull in from it. So I'm glad it, I'm glad at least they left the site up because there's still some great fantastic. I, I was about to say there's some phenomenal articles. So if you have a few minutes and want to go by and check them out, um, be sure to skip the ads or do whatever you can do to, to screw them out of that revenue. But there's some great articles there. Yeah, I know you got you guys did a uh, five by the grinder with me. That was that was fun to help write and talk to you about that one. 
that was a, a segment that Clay and I brainstormed together. I came up with the title from it. We worked on the questions together. Um, it was really cool, and it was a really easy way to get custom guys some attention out there, even if they couldn't do anything like loaned, loan us a knife for review or anything like that. This was an awesome, awesome way to get the word out on some fantastic. And it was a, at the time, it was a new perspective because it wasn't just the knife. It was, hey, let's just tell you a little something about the guy that makes the knife. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always think it's cool to know behind the person how how they got started and all that stuff i find that almost as interesting as uh whatever they're talking about oh yeah so for both uh retail purposes and review or 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 writing purposes uh what are some things you look for in up-and-coming uh makers so in the I don't really get to delve into that too much anymore on the, uh, the retail side of things. Um, my position at the knife center these days is, um, more promotion. You are the face of knife center. Let's go ahead and be honest. I, for better, for better or worse, I am the face of knife center these days. You know, we're putting up several YouTube videos every week. We've got a great media team, uh, there that, uh, that's working for me, um, working under me, I should say, um, well, you know, <laughs> somebody has underlings. Uh, so. Leave it, so. leave it to Dan to go there. Yeah, we will leave it to Dan. <laughs> he can, he can be over there in his corner and have that. But uh, you know, we've got a, we've got a, a great team to help with the promotion. Great team. The the whole building is full of full of great people. Um, but I'm really proud of the team that we've got put together. Uh, to run the video accounts and the social media accounts and the blog at the Knife Center. Uh, we've got this this other guy uh, as well, Seth Vietti, uh, who used to write for Knife News, uh, actually was one of the co-founders of that website. We've got him under our umbrella now. Um, we've got a fantastic videographer so and fantastic photographer as well who's just doing some killer photographs for for everything. So I'm, I'm, I couldn't be prouder of the team. We're doing some really cool stuff, but consequently, I'm not going out looking for all the time for uh, for new makers and new this and that. And also, most of the stuff we're doing on the video side of things is production. Um, custom stuff tends to not do so well on YouTube. We found out back in the blog days, um, it was a really free. It was a really loose environment. We kind of had free reign to write literally about whatever we decided we wanted to. So what, what I looked for and people I wanted to feature was literally just following my muse, like following what, what looks interesting to me personally and I'm right about it. Very cool. So you're mostly into the, the production knives. What, uh, what do you look for in models that, uh, knife center kind of wants to promote? Is there any particular features that they, they look for usually or, um, well, that they sell really well. Yeah. <laughs> there are certain brands where, and, and there are certain new releases where they come out where it's like, you you know, it's going to be a blockbuster. You know, it's going to be great. Um, you know, and you know, it's something we need to promote. Um, so a lot of it is just kind of, you know, we're, we're we're doing what we need to to do to, that we need to promote this week. Because I mean, like I said, we're we're up to four videos a week right now. So there's. You know, there's tons of stuff to do <laughs> um, and, and space to fill. So it's not like we're even necessarily having to pick and choose sometimes. There are some more creative videos we do sometimes. Um, 
Kyle, in some of our conversations we've had, you've mentioned the videos we do um, where we're pitting one model against another model. Mm-hmm. We've got these versus videos. Um, and those come from just, you know, handling more knives in a week than most people handle in their lifetime. And you see all this stuff and patterns sort of start to emerge. So we see things that are similar where it's like, oh, yeah, this is very similar to this. Let's compare and contrast the two. Let's go, let's go head to head. Um, and some of them, like I said, are very obvious on the face of it. Some of them aren't. Um, one of my favorite ones we did is, you know, everyone knows the Buck 110, classic, classic folder. Well, about a year ago, they came out with the 110 Slim, which it was a modernized version of the 110. It came, uh, you could get it in a cheap model or a higher end model. And that one had either Micarta or G10 scales, a little bit slimmer, um, thumb studs for opening and a pocket clip. And we're looking at these and we're looking at the price. And it's like, you know what? The blade length of the 110 and the Spyderco Endura are freaking identical. And then when you go to the, the, the little brothers of each of those family, the 112 Ranger slim, and the Spyderco Delica are also exactly the same size. <laughs> and they both have lockbacks, and they both have great steel, and they're both close in price. That's a, that's a versus video. Let's do this. You know, there's, there's really cool things that if we hadn't had them in our hands and just were kind of seeing this and seeing that, might have never uh, realized that, that how close and how kind of perfectly teed up to each other they were and that's something really cool that uh we thought people would be interested in so we went for it when two very successful knife brands have two very successful patterns there's usually a reason yeah <laughs> these sizes must work hmm. yeah i've i've always loved i've always loved those versus videos whatever i see them pop up on instagram or uh i don't spend a ton of time on youtube but usually always try to watch them to see what your take is on them. Mm-hmm. It's been, been fun. What was it like uh, for your first blade show? I remember meeting you and you were covering a little bit of it with the, the truth about knives. And then now for knife center, you got to, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're doing a bunch of stuff there. Oh yeah. Um, my first blade show was borderline overwhelming. <laughs> I'm sure that's, but anyone can say that. Everyone we probably hear does drinking say that. from the fire hose is a, a pretty often comparison. Indeed. Um, but to me, Blade Show be- quickly became less about the knives and more about the people. I think the greatest thing about this industry, the greatest thing for me about this industry has been the people. The people I've met, the connections I've made, the friendships I've forged. Um, because the, the first year I walked in knowing nobody. And it was like, oh, wow, look at all these cool knives. But the second year, I walked in, and it's like every time I turned around, I had a, I was running into a friend I knew that I had just made in the last year. And it was not some surface-level friendship either, like some pretty pretty good friendships that were kind of forged in the crucible of the knife world, so to speak. And it's, it's just phenomenal. I mean, by the end of the, the weekend of my first Blade show, uh, it was Clay's second Blade show. We were both, you know, covering the show for the blog. By the end of that weekend, um, Ethan Becker had in- essentially given us an open invitation to come visit him and 
check out his uh, knife design reference library, as he calls it, or his knife collection. And I didn't know him before that weekend. I admired him. I always liked his knives. I always thought he was an awesome, awesome gentleman and would love to have met him. Nowadays, I can give him a call on the phone and we can talk for an hour before you even know the time has passed. And that's unreal to me. Yeah, I've always found that a lot of knife people are super helpful if you ever have questions or whatnot. I always, that's how I learn how to make knives. So whenever I have other people ask me about how I do something, I try to be as open as I can about it and just try to pass it along. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was it like working Blade Show and not being behind a table? <laughs> well, it, it's it's cool. Uh, at the blog, like I said, I kind of had was able to follow whatever I kind of felt like following. Um, so I was able to cover the show, talk to people I wanted to talk to, and then kind of get some, uh, some, some personal browsing done as well. Now with the Knife Center, we're shooting uh, shooting video at all the booths we're attending, and the schedule is much more hectic and, and regimented. Do you have to set that kind of stuff up ahead of time? Is there a lot of pre-show contacts for, for interviews, or is it just impromptu? There is, yes. Um, there, there is definitely, um, if you want, especially if you're setting up video time, um, it all, that's, that's all got to be... It, it's all better if that's set up beforehand, if you've got those contacts. And coming to the show now with the muscle of, of Knife Center behind me, I have a, a much better <laughs> Rolodex than we used to. Um, we used to have to just walk up to people and, and ask for some moments of their time to, to cover what we were doing for the blog. But now, uh, you know, at Blade Show, I'd say it, it's a mix. Uh, there's a lot of the heavy hitters that you need to schedule, um, but then there's still some folks that um, you can walk up to um, and see if they have a moment of time to, to do some a little bit of filming. Just for the record, we at Dogwood will always have time for you. I appreciate that, Dan. Um, Shot Show is a is a completely other animal too. I was able to attend my first Shot Show earlier this year um, on behalf of Knife Center. Because it's it, you know it's a show that happens during the week, not a weekend. So I was never able to take a week off of work and fly to Vegas um, on my own. Um, and there's a lot of prearranged there because you know it's a blade show is huge. Shot show puts it to shame, and just in terms of sheer size, it's a much bigger, you know, brighter lights production type of thing. Oh yeah. And we've we've had great opportunities. Like day one, we're sitting down with Eric Glesser from Spider Co. You know, you're not going to get that just walking up to the booth. Yeah. You will if you come up to the, the table of Cage Daily Knives. There we go. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not making – they make probably as many knives as I've ever made in half a day. Probably. <laughs> they're and, they're, and they do a great job with it too. They really are. And though they may be phenomenal production makers – you will never get the one-on-one -on -one service and connection that you will get working with a small local handmade craftsman. Hey, you don't have to convince me of that. I have plenty of customs in my collection, sir. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, uh, you own one of uh, Dan's first 10, right? Uh, yes, I do own one of Dan's, uh, the one of 10 Kephart uh, reproduction project knives. Um, I had to, uh, I had to bid on it at auction. Someone didn't uh, reach out to me and ask me if I wanted to be on a list. So I had to fight it out with the unwashed masses, but I walked away victorious. Yeah. I gotta be honest. 
it didn't really cross my mind that people would, that like I would need a list that there would that mean people that would be interested. Uh, I was a little caught off guard on that one. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to have that knife. The the provenance of the, I'm sure your listeners know that you were you based your knife off of uh, one of the original Cole Klesser brothers knives that Ethan Ethan owns. I used I used to poo poo entirely the idea of Safe Queen knives, but I've got that knife on display in my living room. I've got a, a little showcase with lights and everything. It looks fantastic in there. Your knife terrarium. My knife terrarium, yes. <laughs> yeah, when when Dan had that uh, going up for the the bids, I walked over and thought I might bid on it, and it was like, yep, a little too expensive for my blood. This thing's going to go for a lot more than I thought it was yeah. going to. It was funny for me that year. I you know every year I I save up and for a couple months I try to sell a couple knives and I have my my walking around money for Blade Show. The year prior, I had bought some ungodly number of knives. I don't even remember how many, but it was excessive. Um, that year, when I when I acquired the Kephart, I was walking around all weekend, and I bought, including that Kephart, I bought two knives that year. <laughs> so I was able to splurge a little higher on on the dollar amount that I was spending. So. Yeah, and the the funny story is the guy that that was bidding against you that. When you finally just said, "Look, whatever you bid, I'm going to bid a dollar more," and and he bowed out. Uh, the person that was supposed to get, I think it was number nine, had fallen on some hard times and couldn't couldn't pay for it. Um, so that guy was was actually he was another Beckerhead, which is one of the reasons I was really glad mm-hmm. to uh, that he was able to get it. But he. Uh, it, I took a great deal of pleasure in being able to call him back and go, you know how you didn't get that knife? Well, there's one more chance. <laughs> as long as he paid a dollar more than what I paid, I'm fine with that. Um, <laughs> actually, the- don't, don't ruin it for me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, Dan. He paid a dollar more <laughs> than David paid. Now, the agreement was he would pay the, the bidding price. Um, there we go. So he paid exactly <laughs> what you paid just to right. to keep everything even and fair. Very good. Very good. I accept this. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't have the heart to screw him out of the extra dollar, but I did make him pay what you paid. <laughs> what's uh, What's been your favorite knife to review for Knife Center so far? Ooh, favorite to review. Oh, for Knife Center? Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Man, I uh, there have been so, so many. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you, um, I, I'm not, what's your favorite in the last six weeks? I'll tell you what I'm carrying right now. <laughs> right, that's um, the, uh, we, we recently got a, a new, uh, exclusive from Benchmade, a new, uh, a Benchmade bug out model. Uh, and it has the first ever appearance of what Benchmade's calling battle wash handles. So it has a, it's a, it looks like a, black knife but it's worn away kind of like a stone wash and it reveals a red color underneath huh. they look just awesome they look phenomenal um that's what i'm carrying right now i'm not going to tell you what my favorite knife i've reviewed from knife center is so far uh for one reason only um that's actually going to be part of an end of the year best of the year video that we're slowly working on so i don't want to I don't want to take anything away from that piece of content. I, I understand <laughs> your concern, but really it's, it's, 
it's Kyle and I's wives and like I think my cousin. And that's all the <laughs> listeners. So you're really you're not gonna be spoiling anything. You could tell us and there'll be like three people that hear. Well, I got to say, I am a fan of, uh, we've got a selection of Dan's Kepharts in right now with Firefly handles that you can only get from the Knife Center at this moment. That's true. Y'all have got an exclusive deal on Firefly on the Kepharts. So is that enough pandering for the audience? Is that good? Yeah, I wasn't even going for pandering. I really appreciate the plug. Um, I was just trying I mean, to those, weasel. Those knives look so cool. They're, they look fantastic. I really was just awesome. trying to weasel a little something extra for our listeners. I mean, I have three listeners. Yeah. You, you'll just have to leave a link to the uh, Knife Center YouTube channel in your uh, in your show notes, and I'll have to check back at the end of December. Uh, I see. Yeah. You're going to play hard to like, huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just pulled up that uh, that bug out. That's pretty cool. Is that is that handle all? Is that a metal handle, or is that no, no? So it's their it's their standard uh, grivery material, and it's red, and then they apply that black coating on top of it. Um, so eventually that, you know, there can, it can wear away a little bit more and, and you're going to get just this cool weathered red look. Um, it's the first time, uh, they've put that on any knife, um, and we were able to secure it as our exclusive. And I think it's the best looking bug out that they've created yet. Uh, you know, they had the blue handle when it first came out, uh, and then they had the coyote with the, the gray PVD blade. Um, then competitor had an all black exclusive, uh, but Easily, this is, you know, not even biased. Like, if I were a consumer, I would have snapped this one up in a heartbeat because it's the, it's the best-looking bug out they've done yet. Yeah, I really like that. I would love to see that in blue because I'm a, I'm a huge blue fan, mm -hmm. but that red looks pretty nice too. And right now it's the, uh, the only way to get a satin blade, if you're not into the black-coated blade, is with the blue, the all-blue handle or the, the red battle wash that we've got. But we've also got a black Cerakote blade as well, which... I'm a satin guy. I bought a satin one for myself, but even I have to admit that the black one looks even better. Really? Yeah, I, I think it looks better, but I'm just, I prefer a satin blade for my users, that's all. And uh, are you a serrated fan or are you a uh, plain edge guy? Plain edge all the way. Some some serrated blades have their place. Um, I bought my wife a Leatherman to, to keep in her car. Um, that has a serrated blade on it, and I made sure to get one with a serrated blade for her. Uh, because for an emergency tool like that, we might need to be cutting some rubber hose or something. You know, they're, they, they have their place, but I'm all about playing edge for myself. Yeah. That's, uh, that's my preference too. I, I don't know if I own hardly any, I don't even know if I own a serrated knife yeah, other than only, some kitchen stuff. Yeah. The only serrated edges I have would be on some of my Leatherman tools and, uh, a serrated kitchen knife I've got. Yeah. I find, um, when you're cutting really fibrous material like rope and that sort of thing, sure, there can be an advantage to it. But beyond that, there's just no there's no upside. Fortunately, I know how to keep my knives sharp enough to where it kind of mitigates that a bit. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of teased about it earlier that you uh, you do some knife making. I do. Uh, how does your experience uh, making knives now influence your reviews? Well, it, um, having the, the more of an understanding you have about processes and the way things are done and how hard it is to do certain things, the more informed a review you can execute, um, you know, no, not to put too, fun, too fine a point on it. 
Um, I'm not going to name any particular names, but I've seen some production pieces out there where even in my, with my rudimentary level of skill, I goes like, I can do better than that. And they're charging how much for this, you know? Um, whereas maybe a year or two earlier, I might not have batted an eye at some of these details. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, how did you move from writing about knives to designing knives? So it was sort of, uh, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it was kind of a, a moment of clarity. Sorry. To, I, I hate that phrase, but it really is true. Wow. It's um, like you're a writer or something with all your fancy words. <laughs> um, I think it was right after my second blade show. Um, so the first, my second blade show being the first one where I walked into the room where I knew people. And I, I really felt like, you know, my, my wife said it best, like the deeper and deeper I've fallen into the knife world. She said, you found your people. And it's absolutely true. Like I'm, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be with the people I'm supposed to be surrounding myself with. And came a moment, this was uh, at an older job where I just kind of had a moment where I, I got asked the question, I got pulled into the office at, uh, at the end of the day, Friday. I'm like, okay, what's going on? I'm a little nervous. Wound up, uh, getting a, uh, my boss gave me a, just an impromptu review and a, and a small raise, which I was completely unexpecting. But as part of that, he asked, asked the question, like, where did I see myself in five years? You know, that question, um, which is one I had never had an answer for in my life period up to that point. And I wasn't expecting it either at that, at that moment. So I had no canned response and my mind just completely blanked. And this weird thought came literally crashing in saying I needed to be more involved in the knife industry beyond just writing about it. And I talked to my wife that night. I was still feeling strong about it. Um, and the next, the very next day, um, there was a, uh, the Chantilly in Chantilly, Virginia, the, uh, the nation's gun show goes on. And my good friend LT Wright, who I had met through the blog, um, at that gun show, in fact, walked up to him and introduced myself. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Walked up to him the next day because he happened to be showing at that show and told him that I'd had this crazy thing, this crazy realization that I needed to be doing something more. And I had some ideas. I had some really rudimentary sketches at the point that just had accumulated over the years. And before I, you know, before I could finish my third or fourth sentence, he's like, let's build you a prototype. Let's, let's do something. Let's do this. I mean, if that doesn't tell you anything about how, how great a guy LT is to have in your corner, I don't know what does. And he can detect passion and he can detect good, like-minded people. I think so. LT was the second person to know besides my wife that I was going to do something. This was before I even had a name for what I wanted to do or even what I wanted to do was going to look like at that point. Um, but that was the genesis of Nordsmith Knives, the, uh, the side project I created and still operate to this day. It wound up, uh, I had a couple of, I had two ideas that strong out of the gate I knew I wanted to do because there were knives that I was looking for that I couldn't find anywhere. One of the things I'd been working on with, uh, as I was working for the truth about knives and, and trying to find things was find a knife that would do all of the things I wanted a quote unquote camp knife to do, but that I could still use to do rocking cuts on a cutting board with. 
and that kind of camp kitchen hybrid knife, not entirely a kitchen knife, but a camp knife first didn't exist. And that's what became eventually the canteen knife, which was the inaugural model that, that I used to launch that brand and that LT is, uh, took on production for me. Um, yeah. So you, I don't remember what the question was, but <laughs> your inspiration on that would be a hybrid bushcraft kitchen knife. Bushcraft kind of, uh, camp, camp. uh, you know, camp knife might be more appropriate. Um, you know, maybe splitting hairs no, there. It's, a, it's an important difference. It's small, but it's important. Sure. Um, I wanted it to be a camp knife first. Like it, it, it needed to do all of my camp stuff. Um, but I wanted it to be fine enough and agile enough that I could, I could do good slicing cuts with it. And I could do literally just rocking cuts on a cutting board and, to this day, I've not found anything. There, there are some camp kitchen hybrids out there that can do those rocking cuts and do some cutting board work, but nothing that nails all of the camp knife and all of the kind of hunting and butchering aspects that the canteen knife took on. Nothing that has it all in one package still to this day. I said, and it has such a distinctive handle design. Yes, it does, Dan. Leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh you you talked about uh nordsmith is the the name of the company how'd you how the nordsmith name come about so nordsmith um and i wasn't sure i wanted to use that for a while but i came up with it honestly you know and, and it's and it has confused some people because you know it is an american company um i partner with lt Wright to do all of my uh all of my production so it's made right here in the usa but it's got a name like nordsmith so what's the deal Honestly, it's a sort of an homage to my great grandparents who came to this country from Norway, barely spoke the language, literally like you you couldn't write a better uh, blurb. They they literally moved from a windswept, waterlogged island off the coast of Norway to America and through sheer determination and grit made a life for themselves and their, their descendants. And I, I hope to be able to channel a little bit of that grab the bull by the horns and that little bit of, of kind of go get them attitude um, with, with what I'm doing with Nordsmith. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. What would you say defines your style as a designer? As a designer, it's definitely that kind of, I, my sweet spot, I live in that intersection of the outdoor blade and the kitchen blade, several kind of, one of my designs that I have right now, the Pilgrim LT, is a more traditional, straightforward drop point knife. But the the other knives I have in my collection and the other prototypes that I'm working on right now as well, even if they're not designed to specifically be a camp or kitchen crossover, um, they definitely, in terms of the blade shapes or some of the angles, I'm pulling that influence. Because uh, I've cooked for a long, long time myself. Uh, worked a little bit in restaurants and, and I just, I love to cook at home. So I've got this, this built in muscle memory of knife skills from handling kitchen blades that with the right knife design can translate very well to an outdoors blade. So I'm pulling that influence in not just shapes and, and visuals, but that the actual ergonomics and the use of the knives into what I'm designing for Nordsmith. Very cool. Now, I'm going to expose you to the the modern third rail of knife design. Uh-oh. Where's the dividing line between 
just right and too thick. <laughs> I guess it all depends on the application. Um, and it all depends on the material you're using. I'll, t I'll tell you my personal opinion on Scandi grind thicknesses. I've got no use for a, a, a knife with a Scandi grind if it's any thicker than an eighth of an inch. So you, th so you like thick knives? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. If it's any thicker than, than an eighth of an inch, and there's going to be folks out there who, in the, uh, in the bushcraft and survival communities that are going to poo-poo this or scoff at this idea. Now, I keep telling you, the, the two wives and a cousin. I mean, that, that's it. There's nobody here to get upset about anything you have to say. <laughs> you can be honest. This is, this is a circle of trust. It's a safe space. <laughs> Well, when you get into those thicker blades with a Scandi grind, sure they can still, uh, you know, it's it's a special, it's basically a double beveled chisel. You're you're still going to be able to notch wood fairly well, but once you get thicker than an eighth of an inch, you lose any semblance of slicing capabilities whatsoever. Three thirty seconds is even better for for a Scandi, and like that's the three thirty seconds is the perfect thickness for a Scandi, as far as I'm concerned. I can see that. What would you consider a thin knife for bushcraft, and do you think it could still handle the tasks? Uh, I think three thirty seconds is a great thickness for for a bushcraft knife, um, and if you're using the right material, and uh, that's plenty plenty thick enough to do what you're going to need to do. Uh, when you're getting into larger knives like choppers and hackers, you know it's you're, you're probably going to want to be a little bit thicker, depending on the application, of course. But I use a lot of AEBL for my Nordsmith stuff. And when we were testing out that steel with some of the prototypes, when uh, when LT started first started using that steel, I was, was able to be involved with some of the field testing of those knives. And I've seen 330 seconds thick or 330 seconds thin AEBL batoned through frozen hardwood, which I would never recommend doing, but I've seen it done with no ill effect whatsoever. You know, it, it's going to work just fine for a, a bushcraft knife. That's a great, great little thickness for a blade. Yeah. I know with uh, some of the thicker knives for like choppers and stuff, you, I don't feel like for a lot of those bigger choppers, the thickness is always just, uh, just for the edge, just also to get you the mass up there to oh, definitely. actually hack through a bunch of that stuff. Definitely. Well, it prevents the, prevents rebound. Yeah. So... What are some of your your views on the different knife steels? I know you said you use ABL. How'd you come about to kind of settle on that? Just from the well, it, it seemed like when I was conceptualizing the canteen knife, I hadn't encountered ABL steel yet. But I was looking for something. I I, I didn't necessarily want to go with a particle steel for that first design, uh, just for cost reasons especially a you know brand new unknown company asking for pre-orders, which is how I handled that first run. I don't anymore. I felt like that wasn't quite the way to go. And ad additionally for the, uh, the Pilgrim design uh, that was going to be kind of my, a great go-to recommendation as a, uh, as, as a do it all survival knife. I wanted a steel that was going to be easier to sharpen, still have good performance and good toughness as well. Um, and, the stuff I was kind of working with and, and considering didn't quite fit the bill until I used AEBL. And it, it just, it fell into exactly the traits I was personally wanting my blades to, to be able to pull off. 
And I've, I've kind of got, I've, I say I've got three favorite steels. I've got AEBL is my favorite stainless. My favorite particle steel is 3V. And my favorite carbon steel is either 1095 or 01. It depends on what day you ask me. Um, and the thing that all those knives have in common, I think, is, or all those steels have in common, is they perform exceptionally well with, and, and, so, and the 3V is a bit harder to sharpen than the AEBL, but it's not as hard to sharpen as a lot of the particle steels out there. You get a lot of great performance from all of those steels while still having good uh, field maintenance qualities to them. Yeah, I know Dan uses a lot of CPM 154, and I just use the, the 154 CM and feel like it's a little bit easier to, to sharpen than mm -hmm. some of the, the CPM stuff. Sure. And, the change in grain structure, not just the metallurgical composition, but the grain structure change between a standard and the crucible steels affect the edge retention, and it affects the sharpening ability, or the ease of sharpening as well. And that's just a mechanical property. And what I love about AEBL is its fine grain structure and what it what that does for its edge stability. Um, I mean, if you look under a microscope, AEBL has a finer structure even than CPM 154, which is impressive for it for AEBL not being a particle steel. But what I what I love about that steel so much is it's one of those ones that you get the armchair warriors on the internet who look at the spec sheet and decide what the steel should be and why it's not good for anything. But once you actually use it, it's something that definitely it outperforms what its spec sheet would suggest. It's just, it's a phenomenal steel and it, it, it behaves an awful lot like a carbon steel, but you get the added benefit of the uh, corrosion resistance, which. Sorry, I'm fact checking you on uh, knife nerds right now. Yeah, and most of the people are never pushing their knives to the spec sheet anyway. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, yeah, it, I, I love this deal. It's great. Now, when I'm doing um, my, my own prototyping here at, uh, at my shop here at uh, Nordsmith HQ, obviously I did mention before, you know, I, I partner with LT for all my production pieces, but I do work on all my own prototypes. Um, I actually trained with LT to, to learn their processes. You know, I learned knife making from LT. When I'm working here in my shop, um, I, I do use O1 uh, because it's cheap and it's easy to heat treat, basically. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the reasons I love uh, O1 is it is incredibly forgiving during heat treat. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually, uh, I've actually outsourced my prototype heat treating to our good friend Todd Hunt as well because, man, if anyone can get max performance out of that steel, it's Todd. Yeah, he's got it dialed in. Oh, yeah, just phenomenal stuff, phenomenal stuff. There's there's very few people that actually push their knives to the to the limit of the data sheets when they're actually using them. I I always find a lot of those super steels kind of who wants to have the it's kind of like the newest gun type thing. And I get that, and I I've certainly been you know fallen into that trap. But you do in terms of real world performance, you do wind up hitting a point of diminishing returns. I think, and the reason I like I keep coming back to AABL like. There's something to be said for a knife that you can get sharper easier because it's going to, you know, that's going to counteract some of the quote unquote edge retention versus a more wear resistant steel, but you can't quite get it as sharp. Maybe, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, for some guys, it comes down to it's, it's like the gearhead that has a 750 horsepower powertrain. The car can do 290 miles an hour. But he lives in a, a congested area and never gets it over 80. Yeah. 
you know, some guys want it just to be able to say they've got the best. Oh, sure. And then there's some guys that actually go out there and, and put it to the test. And like I said, I've, I've fallen into it myself. One of the, one of the folders in my EDC rotation right now is M390. Another is LC 200 N. I mean, I love the, the great, the modern super steels just as much as the next guy, believe me. <laughs> but in terms of what I'm making for Nordsmith, I've got a, a dialed in vision of, of what I want it to be, the type of performance I want to, to offer to people and, and AEBL just, it, it hits it very well. Well, on some of the spec sheet versus performance, like Stephen Fowler, he can do some stuff with W2 that's it's just not possible. It shouldn't be done. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he bought less than a thousand, more than seven hundred pounds from this single run years ago, and has so perfectly dialed in the heat treat for that one set mm-hmm. that he has it doing just absolutely phenomenal things that the spec sheet says can't be done. Well, I think that Murray Carter is, is you know, kitchen knife, well, many kinds of knives, but well-known for his kitchen knives. He's kind of the same way. He only works with a couple of steels and just continues to refine what he does with those steels year over year over year. So he knows it inside and out. Yeah, he won the, the kitchen knife cutting competition at Blade Show West this year. And his collaboration with Spyderco uh, won Best in Show as well. And the really amazing thing is after he won the cutting competition, the knife that was the prize, he immediately turned it around, turned around and gave it to one of the local chefs that was coming up. I think he was a sous chef. Mm-hmm. Um, That's and, awesome. And just turned around and gave it to the kid. That's awesome. It was pretty cool. Very nice. The other thing that caught me off guard about him is given his reputation and skill, I expected a much older man. Oh, he's, he's, yeah, I I get that. (laughs) It's impressive what he's managed to accomplish. It really is. Yeah. But enough about Murray Carter. Let's talk more about you. (laughs) I I second that motion. (laughs) Do you want to talk about the couple of models that are currently available on your your website now or? Sure, sure. Why not? So I've got uh, the canteen knife, obviously, was the the knife that launched the company and uh, that knife has done absolutely everything I ever wanted it to do. Sort of, a, it's kind of a big Nesmuk. I'm a, a big fan of of the Nesmuk shape. I love the graceful lines that that uh, pattern um, allows you to play around with. Um, so it's got a, a bigger five and a half inch blade and a longer handle with a couple different handhold positions, so you can get a lot of versatility out of the blade and. I've I've got canteen knives at every corner of this planet at this point. Uh, I've got some down in Australia. I've got a customer butcher caribou uh, in Alaska with it. I've got several over in uh, in the UK these days as well. I mean, it's I'm I'm beyond thrilled with that knife. Um, and even made the cover of Knives Illustrated last year with that knife, thanks to an awesome review from uh, from Tim Stetzer. That's that's the flagship, always will be the flagship. I think that's the knife I'm going to be most known for, uh, most defines Nordsmith. The com- sort of the companion to that knife, I have the Lapwing, uh, which if the canteen knife is your camping slash chef knife, the Lapwing is your bird and trout slash pairing knife that goes perfectly well with it. Um, also makes a really great EDC or day hiker knife on its own. Uh, and in addition to that, I've got the Skipjack, which was my answer to everyone who, which I'm sure you guys get this too, um, as soon as anyone finds out you're a knife maker. You going to make a pocket knife? They always ask. 
and I'm not really, uh, I don't really have a vast interest in doing folders, but I did come out with a pocket knife. I've got a small fixed blade that we sell with a, uh, a leather pocket sheath with a little pocket clip on it. Works great. Blade shape kind of inspired by like small chef knives. And then the, uh, the final knife is the Pilgrim LT. Started out as the Pilgrim. The Pilgrim had a 5.32nds thick blade. And part of that, even though we were talking about thinner blades earlier, part of that was just creating a larger physical wedge for doing things like splitting wood. Uh, but I recently transitioned the model to an eighth inch thick blade, still using AEBL. Uh, two reasons for that. One, obviously it's going to cut better. It's going to slice better. And two, I wanted to, when it came time to do the next batch, I wanted to maintain the price I had on that knife. I didn't want to raise it. And there was a new round of tariffs on the, the steel I was using. So by switching to the thinner steel, my, my cost actually still went up on each knife a little bit, but I held the price right where it was. Uh, but that's a more conventional drop point. It's a, it had everything I wanted in a survival knife with a blade length just under four inches, uh, which is an important blade length for a few places in this country still that have some, some blade length limits. Uh, this knife allowed me to get full cap full size capability while still kind of meeting some of those requirements. And the, the Pilgrim and the Canteen Knife were the two ideas that I I uh, kind of launched the company on. And then because I tuned into your live video the other day, you were you were teasing one additional model that uh, you were working on. Yes. Um, so the the Skogan is the model is what I'm calling the model. Um, and that was also the first prototypes of that started early on after Nordsmith was launched also. I, uh, all of my knives out there right now, none of them are what I would call strictly a quote unquote bushcraft knife. Um, obviously you can craft bush with them just fine. You know, they're great outdoor knives. Uh, but nothing I've got right now has a Scandi grind on it. So I'm working on that. But again, I'm, I'm looking to kind of blend the bushcraft influences and the kitchen knife influences. Uh, I mean, there's so many folks out there that make a great straight ahead bushcraft knife. I have no desire to compete with any of them or, or try to stand out in, in a crowded field that already has it nailed down perfectly, you know. So I've, I've been trying to uh, come up with a bushcraft knife that's a little bit different, but is still going to perform really well and is going to kind of fit in with my design sensibilities. And yeah, I've got... Uh, and it, it's gone through several different iterations at this point because I, I don't want to put it out before it's ready. I don't want to put something out. Um, and fortunately, I don't have to. See, being as it is a side project, I don't have to rely on any income that I would make from Nordsmith, which, to be fair, at this point, everything everything I've made has gone back into the company. I started, I started everything with Nordsmith with a – I opened a checking account and put $300 in it, and everything has come from that money. I've worked hard to, to make that money work. So I've, I've actually not paid myself anything from any of this Nordsmith stuff in the last several years. But um, the, but the luxury of that is I don't need to rely on it to pay my bills, so I don't have to if, – if something's not perfect and it's not absolutely ready to come out, I can, I can push it back a couple of months. I, I have that luxury, and a lot of knife makers that you know need to put food on their table with their craft, that's a hard life, and I don't envy the, the pressure that they're under, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that, that I don't have to. <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, I've, I've, it's like I said, it's gone. The Skogan has gone through several different revisions. 
um, each one looking the, – the actual edge profile has been the same on all of them because I know what's going to work for what I want to do, but everything around it has changed completely several times. Uh, and I've got two more cut out right now trying to refine it to right where it wants to be. So hopefully I'll be able to launch that model next year. Very cool. And if somebody was wanting to buy one of those models, uh, where can they do that? So you can find my stuff on uh, on my website. That's nordsmithknives.com. Make sure you put the knives in there. And in addition to that, um, you do see my stuff uh, on the shelf at Knife Center a little bit. Um, it's one of the perks of uh, me working there as my day job. Uh, I had a nice in. <laughs> um, and even if it's not in stock on knifecenter.com, you can always order it and I can get one to them that they'll be able to ship out to you as well. So if you've got like knife rewards you want to use, through their uh, through the program we offer on the website there. You know. So you've been behind the keyboard, and then you were a purchaser, and now you are the face of Knife Center. How do you, how did you move into the social media side? Um, well, I, I I wouldn't say I, I've never been a purchaser. I wouldn't say that, but I've been the I've been behind the keyboard. I've been on the social media. I've been you know the on the design side, on the manufacturing side, all of that. In the answer, it's kind of funny to me. It's very funny to me that I'm now the face of Knife Center on the YouTube channel. Um, because for the longest time, writing for the blog, for for the truth about knives, I had no interest in video. I was a, I was a text guy. You know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time watching video reviews. I was always seeking out text reviews first and foremost. And as I started at, at the Knife Center, um, it was a real kind of meeting of the of the minds when when I started there I I sent them my resume on a Wednesday I was speaking to the owner of the company Howard Korn on Thursday morning Friday morning I was interviewing and I walked out of there with a job offer wow um it was it happened that quickly and the position I applied for um, was essentially a uh, a product guy adding adding new things to the website oh okay but I think all of us on, so, you know, when like new things would come in from a manufacturer, we'd you know, write the description, take down the specs, get the photos edited, all that sort of thing. But when we were doing the interview, I think everyone around the table knew that that was just the way to get me in the building. And we were going to find the best use for me once I got in there. And it just happened to become the video face of that center. <laughs> it's amazing what a little charisma will do for you. I guess <laughs> it's amazing to me how seeing how far I've come in the last year from when I, I kind of started doing those, you know, it started off as just doing some voiceovers before I was ever even on camera. But in the past, uh, in the past little bit over a year, since I started doing things for the channel, uh, we've almost doubled our number of subscribers. Uh, our views are up like 300%. Um, it's, crazy, crazy kind of growth for a channel that's existed for kind of 10 years. And what I bring to the table, the the level of expertise and knowledge, you know, not to not intending to toot my own horn, but just the, the skills I bring to the table is something that they were lacking on that side of, of things. And it just clicked into place. And we've been going full speed ever since. Now that you've been both in front of and behind the camera, are there some things that you used to look at videos on and go, come on, is it really? And now you're, now that you're there, you have to look back at that and go, Oh wow. That there's a whole lot more to that than I thought there was. 
Um, nothing springs to mind. <laughs> um, it's funny because, like I said, I I didn't spend a whole lot of time watching watching YouTube reviews or any of that sort of thing. I guess the the advantage that that comes with its disadvantages, of course, but the advantage that brings is I'm bringing my my fresh perspective to this medium kind of unfiltered or unaffected by potentially what some of our competitors are doing. Um, And I bring the same level of candor. I try to bring the same level of truth and straightforwardness and ability to, to bring useful information to the people watching the video. I bring this, all of that, the same stuff I brought to the blogs and the, the stuff I used to write. Anything I'm up there talking about, I, I endeavor very hard to not say anything that I don't truly believe in. You know, if there's if there's something that I'm not a particular fan of, doesn't do anything for me, or I'm not really impressed with, I'm not going to get up there and say it's the greatest thing in the world, but I'm going to get up there and tell you exactly what it is and let you draw your own conclusions. Um, I'm not going to, you know, because being, being a retailer, of course, you can't trash things that you're trying to sell. Yeah, it's not not usually very good for business. No. <laughs> so you're you're balancing no. the line between giving honest information and keeping your job. Well, it's it's not even it's not even that. I mean, practically, yes, that's what what's happening, but if there's something I really like, I'm going to share my opinion on it. Say I really like this and this is why. If it's something that doesn't do anything for me or even if it's not necessarily that, if it's anything else, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. If there's something that, you know, does isn't necessarily the greatest, I'm going to tell you, I, I hesitate to say like I gloss over it, um, but I present it in a way where if you're paying attention, you can read between the lines and tell, and you can tell what I'm saying, if that makes any sense. But again, I'm not going to trash anything out there because again, like, I have my opinions, but those are my opinions. This very unique handle design gave me surprisingly few blisters. <laughs> um, indeed, indeed. So, again, I like I, I hesitate to think of a of, a, of a, an example, and you know, of course, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm I'm not in the business of getting up there and trashing anything. Oh, I, I, I'll tell you one off air. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm in the business of giving the consumer. Uh, giving the potential customer as much information as we can, because we, I mean, I see this stuff every day, so I can, I can tell what's going on with a knife. Most knives that knife enthusiasts buy are bought off of a picture on the internet. So I want to help the person to understand what it is they're getting. So being completely honest about what the product is and what it can do, potentially what it is not ideal for doing or what it can't do. And, you know, you take that information and you can make your own decision. You're a big boy. Okay. So where do you think the industry is going as a whole? I love how you lifted that question from our old Truth About Knives 5 from the Grinder segment, by the way. I wondered where that inspiration had come Turning from. Turning the tables on me. brilliance incarnate. <laughs> Turning the tables. Now I have to answer that question. Uh, so plagiarism is the sincerest form of flattery. It's okay. No, no, no. You'll notice Y'all said, where do you think the industry is going? I added as a whole. Yeah, well. So it's totally just, yeah. it's theft, not plagiarism. I know about your preoccupation. <laughs> not safe for work. Bleep that. Can't <laughs> use that. 
<laughs> oh my goodness, the amount of editing that just occurred. See, this is great. You know, I don't, whether he, whether Kyle leaves in what just happened or not. What, when I'm doing the videos up, up at at my day job, it's all it's all my videographer can do to make me look semi competent. So you know, hats off to you, Kyle. It's all on you now. <laughs> he does a great job. Some, <laughs> sometimes they're just uh, golden, and I have to put them after the <laughs> after the outro music. Um, in in answer to your question, it's it's a bit of a tough one. Like we see trends obviously all the time. Um, we just did a video like the, the amount of pocket knives we're seeing that right now with D2 steel that are like under 50 bucks, which I'm not a particular fan of D2 steel in general, but and in a $50 pocket knife, I'll take some D2. Absolutely. You know, that's hard to get past at 50 bucks at, at 50 bucks. You're not, I don't think right now you can get edge retention any better than a, you know, then sometimes a $40 D2 knife for 40 bucks. You're not going to get better edge retention. Yeah. I've been pretty glad that everything on those budget knives isn't eight CRV, whatever, <laughs> which, you know what? I think that's a perfectly good steal too. It's, it's awesome yeah. is what it is, mm -hmm. which is a perfectly good steal. But in, in the, in the true spirit of, of attempting to answer your question with a, a degree of seriousness, I think, you know, we're already seeing it. Obviously, we think uh, kitchen knives have been on the uptick recently. Um, they haven't taken off like I would hope to yet, but, you know, there's still time. Uh, slip joints, I think, are still on the rise. But those are those are kind of fringe things um, in terms of a broader trend. The biggest trend I've been seeing is designers are becoming more and more important. And what I mean by that is not necessarily the custom makers, which of course I'm, I'm not, not to downplay the importance of, of the custom maker. Wow. We just lost but... all of his footage, Kyle. Gosh, <laughs> that's no, 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 unfortunate. It's no, not at all. That's not at all what I meant. No, but what, what I mean <laughs> by where the industry is going, what I see in the production world, especially is these collaborations with the custom makers um, and having a name, a famous, uh, a knife maker's, or knife designer's name attached to a knife has become increasingly more and more important. And I think we'll continue to do so because for one thing, it's, it's another opportunity to market. It's one other way to market something like I'll, I'll use the Benchmade bug out from that we talked about earlier as a great example. Um, it's a, it doesn't have a, a designer's name attached to it. So honestly, in this day and age, it's a bit of an outlier, but I think the reason I think it's a great thing is if production companies are just doing their stuff all internally, it's going to get stale really quickly. You've got this vast army of talented custom makers out there that are generating all kinds of awesome ideas. And the only way most people are ever going to see that is if they partner with a production company. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought the, the bug out was pretty interesting recently uh, with Benchmade because they've had so many designers that they've attached to all their knives. I mean, uh, McHenry Williams, mm -hmm. uh, Mike Snowdy, uh, all those. Shane Siebert, yeah. Yeah. Osborne, those, Warren Osborne, of course. Yeah. Yeah, all those different makers. And then they kind of seem to have kind of been designing some of their own stuff internally now. Mm -hmm. And like Elijah Isham is one of the like super kind of famous de designer guys. I mean, I don't know if he makes 
I don't know if he makes very many knives, but I know he does some knife making, but mm-hmm. pretty much just designs. And, I and think. his his collaborations are all are, are everywhere you look these days. There's some pretty pretty out there and pretty cool stuff. Yeah, pushing the boundaries of what can be done with some of the CNC machines too. Oh, I for think, sure, you know? for sure. And that that's what's great about this industry. You've got everything from the uh, the guy in the in the shed turning out you know beautiful handmade pucos to someone pushing the envelope of what's possible and everything in between. And it's just getting able to see that stuff firsthand every day as I go to work is pretty awesome, I must say. So our our other kind of question, what advice do you have for someone who wants to start writing or reviewing knives? You just got to do it, honestly. You know, if, if if you're looking to, to submit to, let's say, like a magazine or a bigger blog, um, and they maybe don't want to have you right away. It's it's because you don't have a track record. So create your own track record. Um, if you, I, there was a minute there before I, I heard back from the truth about knives where I decided, you know, what, I'm just going to start my own little blog and whatever it, it becomes of it, that's what becomes of it. But you just gotta, you gotta get your, your words out there and get your stuff out there somehow, whether it's from a smaller up and coming blog who is willing to take you on or, finding some outlet to uh to self-publish essentially just get out there and do it and if you're if you're good at it people are going to see it and opportunities you know tend to happen to people if they show some skill at some things yeah i know a lot of people have the they kind of look for something that they don't have before they they get doing it I, I that happened to me a little bit with knife making uh i built up a whole bunch of my equipment before i actually started making a knife mm-hmm. instead of going at it with a file or buying a, a cheap one by 30 from Harbor Freight or something. I mm-hmm. waited until I had a two by 72 and I should have probably just been going at it for a couple of years before uh, it took me to save up for a lot of the other better equipment. Hey, but you're doing cool stuff now though. I got to say. <laughs> Thanks. Is there anything else uh, you were kind of wanting to talk about on the, the podcast? Well, you sent me a couple uh, of uh, advanced questions, and you did—you didn't ask me what my favorite knives were. Well, How'd you skip over? Well, that? so you told us the canteen knife, and then you got really evasive on <laughs> the production knife because apparently that would look bad for the company. But if you want to put something in the outtakes that no one will know about, what is your favorite knife? What is so? I I actually had to th- I thought about this so I would have a prepared answer, um, because it's it it's another one of those things that's tough. Now you you asked me what was my favorite that I'd reviewed for Knife Center. That's a different oh, question. That's th- th- I apologize. You are correct. That's a different question. Okay. David C. Anderson personally, you know, that's a different story. Um, and like I said earlier, this I'm going to have multiple answers to this question. So anyway, so I think and and I. The 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 answer obviously the canteen knife is my favorite that I've designed hands down. As far as knives I haven't designed, I think I, I've I've arrived at my my answer and it kind of surprised me even. It's actually a kitchen knife I own, a custom kitchen knife that I own, not from you, Dan. I'm sorry, but from. Well, that's all the time we have tonight. <laughs> Thanks. For- <laughs> I um one of the guys I was real fortunate to meet in my. Uh, my goings-ons at Blade Show is uh, Christopher Berry, uh, Big Chris Custom Knives. Um, he went viral about a year ago, a bit over a year ago, for some of his Blade Sports stuff, which I always thought was amusing because 
he makes some phenomenally awesome and phenomenally thin kitchen knives. Before the blade sports stuff, that's all he was doing was thinner knives, outdoor and kitchen knives. And I've got a uh, a small cook's knife from him that I had custom made for me with the materials I wanted. It's got some red liners and uh, some bone paper micarta. Looks really cool. Um, 10V steel. And it's about six and three quarters of an inch. It's perfectly balanced. It's made with, with care. And every time I use that daggone knife, I appreciate it just a little bit more. And I've had it for like two years at this point. And so, yeah, I think my favorite kitchen knife, my favorite fixed blade anyway, has got to be that big Chris Cook's knife. Consolation prize to you, Dan. My second favorite kitchen knife is is very easily the uh, custom fish and fowl of yours that uh, that I have, which I adore greatly. Thank you. Um, and then I have an answer for folders as well. Doug Ritter's uh, RSK Mark I folder, currently made by Hogue, but made by Benchmade in the past. It's one of the one of the few uh, folders that are in my rotation when I'm not carrying my Nordsmith Skipjack uh, as my everyday carry. Um, but one of the one of the Ritter folders has been a, a mainstay of my EDC for quite a long time at this point. So even though it's a, an exclusive knife for one of our uh, competitors, if I'm being completely honest, I got to throw that out there. Hey, Doug knows a little something about designing a knife. He does. And actually, like kind of bringing it full circle, when I first started ramping up in my my big interest in in knives and my as I was starting to get out of college, some of his web pages he had up on his knife designs on his website on equipped.org and uh, dougritter.com or .org, I don't remember, where he's these big, long text explanations were an influence on me early on, not not just in, in the types of knives I was looking for, but also in a way to write about knives. And I remember in those days really uh, respecting Doug Ritter's opinion and being really attracted also to uh, Ethan Becker's knives. Uh, those were two very early influences of mine. And this past January at SHOT Show, I got to have dinner with both of them uh, and Doug's wife at a really nice restaurant and, you know, pinch me this isn't real it was such, it was such a cool thing very cool yeah i actually have one of the mark twos the made by hogue that i just got that i talked a little bit about i think on the last show the thing is really nice i never never got around to buying one when they were made by benchmade and then benchmade stopped making them and then <laughs> uh just got around to buying one from uh one well, of the new ones. Well, now, the, now the Mark II is the is the Ritter blade with the Becker handles. That's not the that's not the Hogue. Well, the well Hogue makes the that's the Mark One the 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 folder. I thought it, I thought they were calling it the Mark II with the sunburst pattern on the scales and stuff. No, it's it's still the RSK Mark One. Um, it's just the new you know the Hogue's version of it. Um, yeah, the the Mark Mark Two and Mark Three are reserved. Like they're actually different models, um, and I I love that Hogue. Uh, Hogue is doing. I'm really excited to see what Hogue is going to be up to because they're doing some phenomenal stuff. Their engineering is on point, and really nice people to to work with too. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Anything now that we got those uh, <laughs> the night the the favorite knives. You got anything else you want to? plug or review no like thank you guys for having me on i uh had fun babbling at you for a while uh check out uh would really appreciate anyone's support you can check out uh my projects nordsmithknives.com 
and knifecenter.com. You can check us out there or on YouTube. Yeah, and in the the show notes, you'll ha- we'll have uh, links Instagram and for Nordsmith, the Instagram and Facebook, and Knife Center, the Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube uh, links for people. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been been great. Love learning a little bit more about you and how you got uh, to where you are. Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, you guys can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. And, uh, we have Facebook and Instagram, all under Knife Perspective. And we uh, are trying to do a little bit more on Instagram with uh, shining some lights on some other makers and stuff in our stories. So try to check those out. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. And if you need to, if it doesn't cascade down to one of your favorite podcast apps, let us know so we can try to get that remedied so everybody can find it. And uh, you can get in touch with Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. You can see a whole bunch of his knives and different uh, things on there. And he also has Facebook and Instagram, Dogwood Custom Knives. And uh, if you want to email him, uh, Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And you can get in touch with me, Kyle Daly, cagedailyknives.com, and uh, Cage Daily Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And Kyle at cagedailyknives.com or Kyle at knifeperspective.com. Either one will get me some email. Uh, please, uh, for the podcast, try to rate and review us. Help us to try to rank a little higher in people's search results. I noticed on Instagram we just passed 200 followers, so that was pretty exciting. Uh, thank you, everybody who's following us there. And excited to, uh, for where the podcast is going. We've got a lot of cool people lined up for later in the, the year. Wait, we do? I mean, we totally do. Yeah, and if Dan has uh, has no, <laughs> if Dan has a has a bicep reconstruction, we uh, yeah, we're gonna um, be doing a lot of podcasts. And you know, golly, you know, never mind. Let's let's get it. I am I am nearly dead. <laughs> Alrighty, cool. Thanks, everybody. Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about.